For the King of kings and the Lord of lords, there is no one in this universe like you, yet you are willing to step into this world that is so broken, this world that in so many ways has rebelled against you, but you stepped into this world in order to pay the price, pay the penalty that we deserve for our sins. Lord, we thank you that you have created that way for us to come confidently into our Heavenly Father's presence. Thank you, Lord, that you did all these things because we did nothing to deserve them. That's why it's called grace. It's not fair. It wasn't fair that you went to the cross to pay our penalty, but you did it out of love, out of mercy, and out of grace. And so we say thank you. And I pray that in our time together this morning, that you will give us an increasing level of clarity in our minds and in our faith about the important role that you play, Lord, in our lives and in our salvation. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I would like to show you a picture of my dad. Um, my dad and I, we look pretty similar. Um, this picture was taken on Labor Day weekend when they were visiting from Missouri. And um, after church, we realized, wow, we dressed exactly the same. Um, <laughs> and we have a lot of similar mannerisms and stuff like that. My dad now is retired. But in his retirement, he's not really retired that much because now he serves as a pastor working three-quarters time, which actually ends up being about full-time. But for most of my life, my dad was a dentist. And as I was growing up, I spent a lot of time in my dad's dental office. And you know how dental offices work. I mean, you go in the main door, you go to the receptionist to check in, you sit in the waiting room to wait your turn. And then when it's your turn, you're called back. But still, it's usually a little while before you actually see the dentist. Now, for me, when I went into the dentist's office, it was a very different experience. Because I would bypass the receptionist. I would bypass the waiting room. I would head straight back to my dad's personal office. And if my dad was sitting at his desk, he would always greet me warmly. And if he wasn't there, I would plop right down in his chair and make myself at home. Now, when I did this, no one really raised an eyebrow. And the question is, why? No, no normal person would really dare to do that type of thing. You try that with your dentist and your doctor, odds are good that, that wouldn't really be received in the same way. But for me, I could do that because I had special privileges as the dentist's son. Because I was his son, I could go right back there into his personal office, be welcomed right in, into his presence, no questions asked. And that's such an incredible privilege to have, to have that type of relationship of, of that intimacy and that confidence to go right into someone's presence like that. Now, this morning, we are not here to talk about how to get special privileges in your dentist office. We are here because God welcomes us into his presence. In the Bible, he is called a heavenly Father, and the question for us this morning is this. Is there a way for us to come confidently into God's presence with that same level of confidence and intimacy that I could have going into my dad's dentist's office? That is the question we are examining this morning. And for that, I invite you to, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We are in a series right now that is looking at some pivotal events, a, a real movement that started in the 1500s called the Protestant Reformation. And currently we are focusing on what are called the five solas of the Reformation. Sola is a Latin word that means alone or only. 
And these five souls describe the central priorities of the Protestant reformers. For instance, that the ultimate spiritual authority comes from Scripture alone. And that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that all the glory is to go to God alone. And today we are looking at this truth that salvation comes from Christ alone. The Latin phrase for this is solus Christus. And according to the Bible, when we look at our human nature according to Scripture, we all have rebelled against God. And, and we are all sinful people. We've all fallen short of the standard that he has set for us. Sometimes it is active rebellion. Sometimes we sin by passive indifference towards God. But even in our best intentions, those intentions are still tainted by selfish motives. And according to Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And so what we deserve for our sin is eternity separated from God in hell. That's not very good news. And so a question for us is who will mediate between us and God? Who will intercede? A mediator is someone who comes between two parties who are in conflict with one another and helps them come to a point of reconciliation. And so the question of who will mediate between us and God is a question of, okay, is it Jesus who will mediate for us? Or are there others as well? Maybe priests or pastors or maybe Mary, maybe the saints. Or are we left to our own accord to go through our own good efforts trying to earn enough favor in God's sight? Who will mediate between us and God? And what Solus Christus says is that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and humanity. Jesus is the only mediator. I, I encourage you to look in your Bibles now at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. The Apostle Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So there is one mediator between God and mankind, and that is Jesus. And this is why in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the Apostle Peter said that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. In fact, Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we see that, that Jesus has made a way for us to get back to God. Jesus is the mediator who can reconcile us with God because he has paid the penalty for our sin, that sin that separated us from God. And we sing about these truths all the time here at Freedom's Church. For instance, last week we sang, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Another song that we frequently sing here at Freedom's Church says, In Christ alone my hope is found. And so if you've been around Freedom's for any length of time or if you've been in another Christ-centered church, you are probably very familiar with these truths. They seem quite obvious. But back in the 1500s, this idea of Christ alone became a point of major contention. And so let's look at this topic of Christ, salvation, and the Catholic Church. Because back in the 1500s, the Catholic Church was the church 
in Europe. So let's look at these topics. And according to Catholic beliefs, Jesus Christ is the mediator. And that apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. And so with this, you know, Protestants, evangelicals, we here at Freedoms, we, we agree with that. But as you can probably guess, there's more to the story than just that. Because according to the Catholic Church, not only is there no salvation apart from Jesus, but also there is no salvation apart from the Catholic Church. Now, the reason why is that God's grace is distributed through the Catholic Church. If you want grace, you go to the Catholic Church. You picture it like this. If you want to buy a new Honda car, where do you have to go? You go to a Honda dealership because only a Honda dealership is authorized to sell new Honda cars. Sure, you can get a used Honda somewhere else. But if you want a new Honda car, you have to go to a Honda dealership because they are authorized to sell them and distribute them. In the same way, in this view, if you want God's grace, you have to go to the Catholic Church. Because in this view, only the Catholic Church is an authorized distributor of God's grace. And so the idea is that there is no salvation apart from the Catholic Church. A popular analogy is that the Catholic Church is like Noah's Ark. If you want to be saved, you better get on the Ark, which is, in this view, the Catholic Church. Now, we talked last week about the sacraments. Sacraments are things like baptism and the Eucharist and, and penance, these activities that you do through the church that help infuse God's grace into your life. And we talked about how a sacrament is, is kind of like how you use a spoon to scoop cereal into your mouth. And in the same way, you use a sacrament to, to really channel grace into your life. That is how, in the Catholic view, grace comes into a person's life. And, and leading up to the 1500s and the centuries beforehand, most people in Europe simply accepted this. They didn't raise any questions. That's just simply what they believe, that you need the church, you need the sacraments, you need the priests to help you in the process of your salvation. But then the reformers came, and there were some people who tried to reform the church in the centuries before the 1500s. But it wasn't until the 1500s with Martin Luther, especially starting in 1517, that it really began to get traction. They pushed back hard on this idea that salvation is available only through the Catholic Church. They pushed back really hard because when they looked at Scripture, they saw the teaching that there is only one mediator between humans and God, and that one mediator is Jesus. How then, as they looked at the practices and the traditions and the teachings of the Catholic Church, how can you have the Catholic Church doing all these other things that sure look like they are helping mediate the process of salvation? It was a very key question. And you can look at it kind of like this image up there on the screen, that the Protestant view, what the Reformers were saying as they protested against the Catholic Church, the, the Reformers were saying, you know what? You have God, you have people. They are separated naturally by sin, but Jesus comes in the middle as the one and only mediator, Solus Christus. The Catholic view back then and, and still today is that you have God and people who are separated by sin, and we need a mediator but the, but the mediation task is a process that involves Jesus, the Catholic Church, and the process of works to continue to merit God's grace in your life. So you see there's more than just Jesus there in that mediation process between humans 
and God. In the Catholic Church, for instance, you have the sacraments. The sacraments are the means of getting God's grace into a person's life. For instance, the idea of baptism is the start of salvation, that when a person is baptized, they don't have to have faith yet in this view. Instead, when they're baptized, simply by the act of being baptized by a priest, grace is infused in their life, and they, at that point, have salvation. It's a mediation process that the sacraments enable. The priests are involved as mediators as well because they are administering the sacraments that that really channel God's grace into people's lives. Other mediators in this view are Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and the saints. This is why you see Catholics frequently praying to Mary and the saints because Mary and the saints are seen seen as having a much closer relationship with God and Jesus than we do. And so we ask um, the the saints and Mary to pray for us, to intercede for us, to mediate for us rather than us going straight to God in prayer. Focusing specifically on Mary who plays a very significant role in Catholic theology, Mary is actually called a co-mediator with Christ in the Catholic Church, a co-mediator with Christ. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, you may be familiar with a prayer called the Hail Mary. You guys familiar with that? Yeah, I mean, the final line of, of the Hail Mary prayer says, Hail Mary, or Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Now, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is their explanation of their official theology, it expands on the various parts of the Hail Mary prayer. And here is the expansion and the explanation of this last line of the prayer. And it says, this is section 2677 of the Catechism, By asking Mary to pray for us, we acknowledge ourselves to be poor sinners, and we address ourselves to the Mother of Mercy, the All-Holy One. That's referring to Mary. We give ourselves over to her now in the today of our lives. And our trust broadens further already at the present moment to surrender the hour of our death wholly to her care. May she be there as she was at her son's death on the cross. May she welcome us as our mother at the hour of our passing to lead us to her son, Jesus, in paradise. Now, this is some nice sentiment here. It's nice to think that we have Mary there interceding for us and just so caring and so merciful and so gentle and gracious. It's nice sentiment, but it's not biblical. You, you hear what it's saying here? It's saying, okay, we, we have a mediator. Jesus is a mediator between us and God, but Mary basically serves as a mediator between us and Jesus. Because it, it says that in our hour of death, after we pass away, Mary will take us and lead us to her son, Jesus is a mediation type of process. It's going between us and him. And, and so the, the reformers are looking at these topics, and they're getting pretty worked up because, you know what? It sure seems like even though they claim that there is one mediator, Jesus, instead, when you look at the practices and at the teachings, wow, you sure have all these others who are involved in that mediation process as well. So the question is, Catholic Bibles, they have 1 Timothy 2.5 in there about there being one mediator. So how do they reconcile the idea of Jesus being the one mediator with all these others, whether people or things, involved in the mediation process as well? How does that work together? And so the idea is that the Catholic Church 
assists in Christ's mediation between God and humanity. That the Catholic Church assists that process. Uh, for instance, there is a ministry called Catholic Answers. They're active on, on uh, internet as well as publishing books. They're one of the strongest and most articulate defenders of the Catholic faith. And in addressing this question, they say this. They say, is Christ our one true mediator? Absolutely. And it is the same Christ who has chosen to use his body, which is a reference to the church, to mediate God's grace to the world in and through him. And so there, it's saying that Christ is the one mediator, but that he shares that responsibility uh, with others to help in the mediation process. Back in the 1960s, there was a Catholic church council called Vatican II. It was a very influential council on Roman Catholicism ever since then. Still shapes the Catholic Church in huge ways today. But part of the council was focusing on the role of Mary in the faith of Christians. And especially in her role as the co-mediator with Christ. And so here is part of what the official statement from Vatican II Council said. It said that this idea, this, meaning the idea of Mary's co-mediation neither takes away from nor adds anything to the dignity and efficacy of Christ, the one mediator. A little bit later, it says, the unique mediation of the Redeemer does not exclude, but rather gives rise to the manifold cooperation, which is but a sharing in this one source. Now, I know that's, that's wordy. Um, you have to do a little bit of work to get your mind around that. But basically what it's trying to say is that, okay, Jesus shares with others. Others cooperate in that process of mediation. It doesn't detract from what Jesus did. It doesn't even add anything to it. But others are involved in the mediation process as well. Now, when I look at Scripture and I reflect on this practically, I look at, at the idea that God is a, it says a jealous God. He's not interested in sharing worship um, or devotion with other people. He, he is calling for the focus and the glory on himself. And so you see, Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the one who receive, should receive the glory for reconciling us with God. But the, in the process, if we had other mediators in that process, what we end up doing is distracting from Jesus himself. And frankly, when I look at Scripture, not only is it unbiblical, but that's, that's not honoring to Jesus at all. I think, I mean, just using a, a more daily analogy, I am married. Imagine if I said to my wife, Shelly, Shelly, I love you. I would like to take some other wives as well, though. You think she would be very happy with that? What if I said to her, Shelly, you will still be my main woman. But I would just like to bring in some others to help assist in, in the wife type of responsibilities and roles here. Does that sound all right to you? They'll just be your assistants. You're still the main one. I don't think she would go for that very well. Because, you know, in our wedding vows, we pledge ourselves exclusively to one another. That we are to love and be devoted to each other alone, uh, apart from others having that same level of allegiance. That alone in the vows makes a huge difference. And it's the same way with Solus Christus, Christ alone. That he alone is our mediator between us and God. And so let's turn our attention now to Christ's salvation and the Bible. What does the Bible teach about these topics? Well, the Reformers were very passionate that Christ alone 
is our mediator. And all these solas, the alone makes a huge deal. You drop the alone, there's nothing controversial from a Catholic perspective. You keep the alone in there, it's, it's very controversial. I mean, you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There's one mediator between God and mankind. That is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one mediator. This is why, for instance, we pray to God in Jesus' name. He is the means by which we can come confidently into God's presence. We don't need other intermediaries because Jesus did everything that's needed because he is our all-sufficient substitute. Look again with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let me read our, our passage again. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. The idea of ransom is there is a payment that had to be made in order to, to atone for our sins. That our sins earned us the death penalty. Jesus paid it all. That, that's why Jesus is the one and the only mediator between us and God. And it was a perfect, all-sufficient substitutionary sacrifice that he made on our behalf when he died on the cross. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews talks a lot about this. Hebrews is written to a Jewish audience. There's a lot of Jewish imagery here. But I think the points here in Hebrews are still relatively easy for us to understand. Let me read for us Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, about the sacrifice that Jesus made and how sufficient it is. It says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, referring to Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, which means he no longer had to keep offering sacrifices. Jesus gave one sacrifice on the cross. That is sufficient. And it says, and since that time... He waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so the one sacrifice, once for all, Jesus accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for salvation. Now this idea that the reformers were putting forth back in the 1500s caused a drawing of, of hard battle lines between the Reformers and the Catholic Church. Because in the Catholic view, Jesus did not fully pay it all. There's still some left for people. Even after we receive salvation, we still, for instance, have to keep working to get more infusions of grace because the grace we initially received from Jesus through baptism is not enough. So we need more and more and more and more all the way through our lives. And it's kind of like, okay, if we have a debt to pay of $100, Jesus comes along and pays, say, 80 of it. But that still leaves us with some that we have to pay on our own. And that's where the good works and the acts of merit and the sacraments come, on, come in, trying to get more grace into our lives to help make up that last bit that's dependent on us. Because in the Catholic view, we have to cooperate with God's grace in order to gain salvation. Now, the issue is, in this Catholic view, that odds are good, none of us are going to actually be able to pay that entire debt on this lifetime. 
unless we're a super spiritual saint that goes straight to heaven, the rest of us would have to basically go into this waiting room, kind of like this, it's basically a house of horrors, which is purgatory, in order to be further punished for our sins, because Jesus did not pay the full punishment for our sins, and so we have to pay that punishment ourselves. And if we don't get it done here on this earth, you have to go into purgatory in order to be purged of those sins before you can go fully into heaven. Now, the reformers, they were very harsh critics of the idea of purgatory, not just because it's not found in the scripture, but because it undermined the all-sufficient sacrifice that Christ made for us. Because if we still have some, to pay, some sin to pay for ourselves, it means that Christ's sacrifice was not fully sufficient. But in fact, Christ's sacrifice was sufficient when you look at the teaching of Scripture. You think about Jesus on the cross as he's dying. He calls out, it is finished. That is a financial term that means paid in full. There is a debt to be paid, and Jesus is saying he paid it all. There is nothing else that needs to be paid. This is why in Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, for instance, it says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation? Because it's all been taken away through Jesus. Jesus paid it all. Now, you remember the solas that we've been talking about. I mean, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Those are all deeply intertwined, and they all center around Jesus. So one of the other aspects that we have to understand when we look at salvation, Christ, in the Bible is that Christ is the object of saving faith. Pastor David did a tremendous job of illustrating the importance of having a strong object for our faith as he was giving that children's message. Christ is to be the object of our faith. You know, sometimes in today's society you hear people say, well, you just need to have faith. You know, I had faith, I just kept believing, and it turned out well. You know what? Faith, according to Martin Luther, Martin Luther said that, that faith is not faith without an object. And the only saving faith is faith in the saving one. Faith needs an object to truly be faith. This idea that oh, you just need to have faith and that faith will, will save you or faith will help you out, get you through something. That's popular in Disney movies. But that's not biblical at all. We need a solid foundation for our faith that we are depending on. And Jesus is that one. That if we want to be reconciled with God, that we need to have faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why Martin Luther, when he was writing a letter to one of his friends, he said, I teach that people should put their trust in nothing but Jesus Christ alone, not in their prayers, merits, or their own good deeds. And so Christ is to be the object of our faith, that he is the one in whom we trust. And so for all of us, it's vitally important that we come to that point sometime in our lives where we say, you know what, I can't do it on my own. And I recognize my religious activities, my good works, they might be helpful for helping me to grow in various ways, but at the same time, they cannot merit me more favor in God's sight. Because I need Jesus alone. Jesus alone paid my penalty for sin. And so I'm trusting myself. I'm throwing myself on Jesus alone. That is how a person gets right with God. That's how a person can have confidence in heaven after they die. It's by trusting in Christ Alone, So I pray that if you have not come to that point of trusting Christ alone, that today or sometime soon process these things. I mean, own them for yourselves, not just because I say them. But it's important to come to that faith in Christ because it's only 
by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that we can have salvation. But when we do have that, we understand that Christ gives us tremendous spiritual confidence. I love this quote from Martin Luther. He said, okay, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. So you know what? When we have faith in Jesus, we don't have to be ashamed of the fact that we are broken, messy people. Instead, we come to him in our brokenness, in our messiness, in our sinfulness, and cast ourselves on his mercy by faith. And because he has paid our penalty, that then can give us confidence that we will not be condemned, we will not be harshly judged by God, but instead, through faith in Christ, we can have confidence to enter his presence. This is why in Hebrews chapter 10, if you were to read just a couple of verses later, this is what it says. I read earlier about Christ being that once for all sacrifice. Just a few verses later, picking up in verse 18, it says, And where these sins have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Because Jesus paid it all. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with, with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Now, this idea of the most holy place, I and mean, there's a lot of Jewish terminology here. It's talking about the temple and the whole sacrificial system and how Jesus really trumps them all. But this idea of the most holy place is, is a picture of the most intimate, powerful presence of God. And how now, through Jesus, we can have confidence to come into the intimate, power, powerful presence of God. Just like when I was growing up, I had confidence just to walk in the door of my dad's dentist office and go straight into his personal office. I could sit right down in his desk chair. I could open his desk drawer, which I did to get various things out of there, including the cool cinnamon spray that I really liked. I, I could do all those things with complete confidence that I would not be cast away. But instead, because I was his son, I was welcomed into his presence with confidence. And Jesus makes that same privilege available to us by trusting in him, to come confidently into God's presence. And what a difference this is from the typical Catholic view of these topics. Because in Catholicism, so frequently there is still guilt. As a person's going through life, there's this, this feeling of, I still need to do more. I'm not doing enough. And so there's this guilt that, that, that can easily be carried through life when you don't recognize that Jesus has paid it all. In addition, there's a fear of what awaits us after death. Because as I said earlier, there's the fear of purgatory. That is like this waiting room. You're waiting to get to God. But it's a waiting room that's more like that house of horrors because it's a place of punishment, to be purged of your sins. Um, and so when, when, when a person from a Catholic belief system is, is looking at the death, they're hoping for mercy, but they recognize fearfully 
that they will probably be in purgatory before they can go confidently into God's presence. What a difference Jesus makes. And this is why we sing in that song in Christ alone, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. In John chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus, or not, it says that to anyone who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe Christ, we can be adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. It only happens through faith. But when we do that, we are welcomed confidently into his presence as full sons and daughters. No fear of condemnation. No fear of judgment. Instead, we are welcomed through Jesus with open arms into the infinite, powerful presence of God. Let's pray. Our Father, what a blessing it is to be able to come into your presence. We confess again that we do not deserve that. It is pure grace. We are so thankful, Lord. And I pray that each one of us will, if we have not already, will receive that gift by faith, trusting in Christ alone, saying, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. Jesus, I need you. And that as we do that, that we will experience the new life that's available only through Jesus. A life that frees us from condemnation, frees us from fear, frees us from guilt, frees us from that, that constant treadmill of needing to try to earn identity and significance and security because, Jesus, you've already given it to us. And so, Lord, help us to trust in you alone and to graciously and humbly point others to the hope that they too can have in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.